Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Well, welcome to the show again. I cannot even uh, begin to tell you the excitement that I have as a host to have someone that has such prestige and is known worldwide to be on my podcast, vlogcast. Today I have with me Pete Fader, Professor Pete Fader. Let me tell you a little bit about him. You know, there used to be an old commercial that uh, was really a classic, has become a classic, and it was about E.F. Hutton. And the tagline was always, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Well, I'm going to tell you something. When Dr. Peter Fader talks, companies like Nike, Starbucks, and many others listen. You want to know why? Here's why. He's, first of all, very humble, so I'm going to have to do all the bragging. Let me tell you a little bit about Professor Fader. He is the most qualified and recognized subject matter expert in the world, in the world, in predictive analytics. That was a big word for me, predictive analytics. You're going to hear more about what that means. It's really a method and it's a model for valuing publicly traded retailers that focus on customer retention. So this is all about customer behaviors, and he's going to talk a lot about that. More about Professor Fader. He is the Francis and Pei Wan Cha. Did I say that right, Pete? Sure did. <laughs> uh, marketing professor at Wharton School for 35 plus years. He earned his PhD from MIT, where he met his wife. He's recognized worldwide with his model that analyzes customer behavioral data, and that data helps companies understand and forecast customer shopping and purchasing. Really interesting. I just find this fascinating. He recently sold one of his companies that he co-founded to Nike. Not a bad deal. He is the author of best-selling book, Customer Centricity, among others that he'll talk about. And he's had many awards for his research. He was actually named, as an example, by Advertising Age as one of the top marketing technology trailblazers, and that was the only one that was an academic. Whew. Without further ado, welcome, and you gave me permission to call you Pete. Absolutely, Valerie. Thank you so much. I appreciate that introduction. I appreciate the chance to talk to you. You know, I want to tell the audience, Pete, something about our introduction. You actually saw one of the podcasts and you made a comment. And I commented back, which I always try to do, and said thank you. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if he'd be on the show. Well, little did I think that you would pick up the phone, that you would pick up the phone when I called, you answered your own phone, and when I asked you to be on the show, you said, sure. Now, Pete, that says something to our audience, because so many times 
people will say to me, oh, I would never reach out to vice president so-and-so or CEO so-and-so. And here you are, world-renowned, and you answered your own phone. Well, first of all, I'm not vice president so-and-so. <laughs> and even as a professor, um, it turns out, despite how long I've been a professor, I've actually been Pete for a lot longer than that. Uh, and even when I'm done professoring, I'll still be Pete. So, uh, so the professor thing is great. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful, the kind of uh, resources that it provides and people I get a chance to meet. But uh, in the end, I'm just a, I really am just a regular guy. Uh, and the fact that you'd be surprised that I'd be answering my phone comes as a surprise to me, because uh, that's, that's the only way to be. Well, thank you. There's there's nothing better than uh, that humility, and you certainly demonstrate that, Pete. I want you to uh, tell us a little bit about this. You call yourself the nerdy, mathy guy, and here you are so down to earth. My question is, explain, please, about this proven formula that you have come up with. What is it, and, and what does it do? Well, let's first take this step back into the nerdy, mathy guy part. Um, that is me. And it used to be uh, not so much a, a point of shame, but something that I tried to hide. And I was kind of, you know, act normal. Um, but now it's, it's kind of cool to be geeky. And, and the, the data and the analytics and the models, uh, people seem to celebrate that. It's, it's, it's great from both a, a personal, professional standpoint. Uh, the things that I talk about that would usually get people to walk in the opposite direction. Now, all of a sudden, they lean in closer. Uh, so I've just had the, the privilege of kind of really, truly pursuing my passion of playing around with numbers, of telling stories, of trying to predict who's going to do what next and to be held accountable by it. So, I mean, that, that's what I've been doing, not only over the time I've been a professor, but even as, as a kid growing up in New York, just playing around with data, a lot of it having to do with sports and, and other kinds of things. And it just so happens that the field that I'm in, marketing, customer behavior, is really well suited for these kinds of skills. So to be able to say, how long will this customer stay with us? And how many more purchases will she make? And how much will she spend when she does? It's stuff that I just naturally enjoy. And I've been doing it for years and years even before it was cool and interesting. But now all of a sudden companies are saying, can you do that for us? Can you do that with us? Can you tell us what it all means? Uh, and well, sure, yeah, as long as you're interested, I'm, I'm happy to do so. That's all it is, is basically predicting customer behavior, uh, trying to understand those patterns, trying to give companies advice about how to best leverage them. So Pete, how long did it take you to become the expert that you are and come up with this magic, I'll call it, formula. So the, the particular formula, I mean, I've come up with a lot of formulas over the years, uh, but the particular one that you're referring to, this idea of projecting customer lifetime value, uh, a couple of things about it. First of all, it came to me, I don't want to say late in my career, because, you know, I'm still a kid, but, uh, but I was already a professor here for like 15 years when I, when I came up with it. I was working on a lot of different things. But this topic, this idea of customer lifetime value, this idea of saying, what will each customer be worth over a long horizon in the future? Uh, uh, those words, CLV, customer lifetime value, 
are quite common today, but they weren't common back around the turn of the century. And for most of my career, at least the early part of it, uh, I was focused more on predicting products. So how many people will buy the product? How many units of it will we sell? Uh, how long will people keep buying it? A very product focus. Uh, it really was right around 2000 where I made that pivot from projecting product issues to projecting customer issues, started developing new statistical models for it. But ironically, the one that you're giving me all this credit for, the origins of it, the, the first versions of it, actually came from someone else, came from a couple of other colleagues uh, who actually did some research way back in the mid-80s, uh, a, a paper that was basically ignored back then and since then. Uh, and I found this thing and said, whoa, this is good. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's work on it. Let's popularize it. Let's add bells and whistles to it. Uh, so, so I'm really standing on, on the shoulders of giants. In this case, a professor named Don Morrison, who recently retired from UCLA, and another professor and friend and mentor, Dave Schmidtlein. Uh, they worked together. Uh, Dave was a colleague here at Wharton and is now actually the dean at the Sloan School, the business school up at MIT. Uh, so, so I actually started with some of their work and then just took it to the next level. Uh, and it's been just, just a lot of fun and very fulfilling, but I'm only going to take as much credit as I deserve. See, there you go again, humility. So do you have a copy of your book? You've written several. Do you have all of them there to hold up? Uh, I do, I do. Uh, so, you know, as I, I was doing all this math, and coming up with these models, these predictions, and, and again, it's different now, but 10, 15 years ago, a lot of companies would say, who cares? What difference does it make? You're enjoying your math, good for you, but you know, mm -hmm. I'm running a business here. And I found it very frustrating that companies weren't paying attention to some of these vital issues. And that's why I wrote book number one, <laughs> Customer Centricity. The, the name doesn't really mean that much. It's kind of like blah, blah words. It's the subtitle, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage. The idea that not all customers are created equal, and if we can understand the differences across them, and again, figure out ways <laughs> to leverage those differences that we can make more money. Let me just turn that phone off. We can make more money in a sustainable, defendable, ethical manner than just focusing on the product. So book number one was about what these ideas are and why companies should consider them and why some companies that are considered to be customer-centric really aren't, uh, to try to bring real clarity to it. And then book number two, after we get people to understand what it is and why they want to do it, the book number two is the how do we do it? The customer centricity playbook. So how to really build a winning strategy based on some of these models and ideas. So, you know, people will read these books. Uh, and if, if, if you read these books, they're filled with words. Like, like normal books written by normal people, which isn't me. Again, most of what I do, all the stuff behind me, all those academic journals over there filled with math and Greek letters, numbers. That's really what I do for a living. But I, I found, not surprisingly, that if I couldn't translate the math and the, and the implications to plain English, and I couldn't motivate people to want to read it, then why am I doing it? So I wrote the books more you know, out of ego, just, just wanting people to pay attention to my stuff. Uh, and it's, it's worked really well. I'm just really pleased to see how many companies have said, aha, I get it. Tell me more. 
and then I can hit them with all the research. So it's been a nice one-two punch. So you are a great communicator. I've watched many of your uh, interviews and then you interviewing people. You could do this for a living too, Pete. Well, I'm a professor, and so it kind of <laughs> comes with the, the territory. <laughs> right. so, you better be, uh, right? I, I, <laughs> what I also know about you, though, is that you take this mathy, nerdy stuff, and you make it real for people. Give us an example of a case study where a company listened to you, and what was the outcome? So for the early part of my career, which is to say up until very recently, um, a, a lot of it was fairly tactical. It would be going to companies, either encouraging them to run some of these models or running it for them, and then giving them specific advice about how they should either reallocate their advertising or change some of their product features or go after different kinds of customers or go, or, or go after customers in different, different channels or different geographies or different places. So a lot of it was very, very tactical. And a lot of the, 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 some of the companies that you've mentioned, like the, the Nikes and the Starbucks and, and many others, have, have listened and, and acted often on a fairly tactical level. Uh, recently, it's become much more strategic because after selling the first company, Zodiac, to Nike, as you mentioned, founded a new company, Theta, with my same co-founder and former PhD student, Dan McCarthy. And the goal of that company is to take the same models, the same math, the same data, but to do something different. And that's this idea of customer-based corporate valuation. Rather than simply saying, you know what, you should send this email to this customer at this time, which I still enjoy doing, let's, let's raise it up a level and let's work on this idea of telling companies what the whole company is worth. That if we can project how many customers you're going to acquire and how long they're going to stay and how often they're going to buy and how much they're going to spend, stuff that I like to do, we can do a really good job of projecting your revenue of projecting the overall valuation of the firm and basically identifying what companies are overvalued, what companies are undervalued, why, and giving that advice to investors. And it's been, it's been crazy for a marketing guy like me, I'm not a finance guy, to be able to have advice that finance people would actually be interested in and having a you know, pretty good track record of, of saying which companies are over versus undervalued. Uh, and then letting other people, because again, I'm not a finance guy, but letting other people make decisions on the basis of it. Uh, it it's been great fun uh, and, and really just adds a real spark to every day and opens up a whole new audience for people to pay attention to the kind of work that I do. It's a shame you don't uh, like what you do, Pete. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. The passion is fabulous. So from a customer perspective, you tell these customers what kind of a customer is the best. Talk to me about us, about just good customer service. And let me tell you why. I recently had an experience with, I won't say who, but a vendor, a uh, company that should have had fabulous service. And it was anything like that. So I will say, as a customer, I don't value them anymore. And if I didn't have to use them on certain areas, I wouldn't. So put it in perspective as customers who are listening to this show, us as customers. Yeah. So there's two problems out there. Problem number one is some companies that just see all that customer service stuff as a cost. 
it's like, okay, yeah, we got to do some of that. But, you know, we want to do the bare minimum. It's just a cost. We're not going to get anything out of it. You know, there's, there's much better things for us to be doing with our dollars. So let's not, you know, waste it all. Let's, so so the, there's uh, many who take that kind of minimalist view. They don't see it as an investment. They don't see the payoff from customer service. And then there are others that go to the opposite extreme that say, we love every customer and we can't sleep at night until the least happy customer is satisfied. And we're going to lavish all of our customers with, with everything they want. In fact, we're going to empower our frontline salespeople to give our customers whatever it is that they need. And I'd say that's not good either because a lot of those customers aren't really valuable and you end up lavishing a lot of money, a lot of attention, a lot of effort on them. And then better customers who actually could benefit from it, who deserve it, who demand it might be left out. So it's finding that just right balance. It's knowing which customers deserve that kind of, you know, red carpet, blue ribbon treatment and which ones, eh, we'll give them the bare minimum. They're not that valuable. You know, we don't want them to leave, but if they were to, it's not going to have a dramatic impact on us. So helping companies find that balance. Who are the ones that we're going to go through the gates of hell to hold on to? And who are the ones where we're going to say, I mean, not to be too nasty about it, but take it or leave it. Uh, helping companies find that balance and having the courage to be able to look different customers in the eye and say different things to them, that doesn't come naturally. Uh, and again, that's my job, is to empower companies to have the courage to do it and to give them the tools, the models, uh, to be able to support it and evaluate it. And even to understand it, I'll bet, right? Sure, that, that's right. And, and to basically know where we're drawing the line, why we're drawing the line, and what specific aspects of customer service Will the good customers really respond to? You know, should we just be their best friend on all dimensions or should we focus on surrounding them with certain kinds of service, advice, products, and so on? Uh, and so there's a lot of insight, a lot of science uh, that, that should show up here. But for a lot of companies, they don't want to be scientific about it. And again, they're either kind of all out or all in uh, and leaving a lot of customers either wanting something different, like in your case. Pete, I want an example of a company that didn't listen, that didn't listen, and what happened. So, uh, again, we, we can give uh, a, a tactical examples of, of companies that will, but we can stay with customer service. You know, either we'll, we'll spend too much or often too little. Uh, and again, the, the results there won't necessarily be dramatic. Ah, they left some money on the table. Uh, ah, they, they didn't. Uh, you know, uh, pursue their strategy as effectively as they could. And, and I, lots of stories like that. In fact, in, in book number two, lots of, of case studies tending to focus on, on the better ones of companies that actually did pay attention, that did go against the grain, that did some of this unusual stuff, focusing more on customers instead of products and then finding success with it. Um, but on the valuation front, it, it, it's actually quite interesting. Because, again, I'm not afraid to kind of look a CEO in the eye and say, your company is overvalued. You're not worth quite as much as you are. And that doesn't mean you're a bad company. It might not be your fault at all, Miss CEO, but it could be that Wall Street is simply overvaluing you. So it's not necessarily a failing of the company. It may be just a failing of, of the marketplace. There's actually a, a number of companies out there 
where we've done this kind of analysis. And, and there are some wonderful examples, companies like Slack, for instance, the communication software, where when they went public, we said, this is an incredibly valuable company. And a lot of people said, oh, you don't understand. They're going to get crushed by Zoom and Microsoft Teams and, and other software. And we said, you don't understand. Their customers stay with them forever. <laughs> we said, this is a really, really valuable company. You're, you're kind of underestimating this one. And it was very gratifying when uh, uh, several years after we did our analysis, um, Salesforce.com, the behemoth software company, bought them for exactly the price that we said they were worth when they first went public like two years earlier. So, so, so examples like that where we say that, that companies are uh, undervalued with a great opportunity. Uh, and then other companies out there, uh, it's a really interesting one going on right now is Wayfair. Many people would be familiar with the, the online furniture company. Again, I'm not at all critical about them. In fact, to their great credit, they put a lot of really rich metrics out there, really good data, better than most companies, for, for someone like me to be able to look at them and reverse engineer what they're really worth. And I've been saying for years that despite my respect for the company, they're overvalued. Their, their price on Wall Street is, is higher than it should be. Uh, and it's been fascinating to see the ups and downs that they've been taking. Uh, for instance, they were they, they were up worth about $180 a share and then collapsed right down to where I kind of predicted on February 28th, 2020, mm -hmm. right before COVID. Oh. COVID was the greatest thing for Wayfair because everyone was at home, you know, creating that home office. They couldn't go to a furniture store. And so Wayfair went through the roof and their stock price went up to close to 400. Uh, and again, uh, good for them that they're making a lot of money, but they're not that valuable. And it's been interesting, again, not rooting against them, watching their price sink 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 uh, now it's you know less than half of, of what it had been uh and there's still some room to go uh, again uh, i i love what they do i'm a customer of theirs uh but it's important for markets to look at companies objectively mm -hmm. using the data and not just using some fanciful notion of i like this company they're worth a lot mm -hmm. let's judge them based on here we go again how many customers are they acquiring and how long are those customers staying and how often are they buying and how much are they spending? That's the right way to evaluate a company. And sometimes there's a disconnect between what those numbers are telling us and, and what people are buying and selling the company for. That is quite a story, Pete. That really, they didn't listen. Uh, so I was asking you before the show of some trivia things and you mentioned um, coolnumbers.com. Tell me about that, coolnumbers.com. The audience, I asked him the question, you know, what else do you do? And he said, oh, let me tell you about this. So tell us about it. Yeah, I probably should because, you know, some people find the, the nerdy, mathy stuff endearing. Um, this is like, really? Uh, when I was a little kid, every day, mom would come home from the grocery store and would and would uh, you know and you know she'd pay with cash. Some of your listeners might remember cash. Um, and and I'd look at the dollar bills that that she'd bring home, and I always obsessed over the eight digit number on the dollar bill. 
Uh, and I just had my own criteria why certain numbers, certain sequences were interesting. I'd say that one, I'd give that one an 80 out of zero to 100 scale. But this other one, I'd only give this one a 30. Uh, and so I had a whole scoring system, things that made numbers interesting based on the patterns uh, and, and things like that. Um, and when that whole internet thing started in the late 90s, I went right out and bought the domain name coolnumbers.com so I could take this idiotic vision and bring it to life. And so if, if people are really interested, you go to coolnumbers.com and you type in the eight-digit number on a dollar bill or any eight-digit number, and it will tell you, according to the universal coolness index, on a zero to 100 scale, how interesting is that number? Uh, and that's what I do is I collect dollar bills with interesting numbers. I literally have shoe boxes jammed full with dollar bills just because I like the numbers. Um, and that's it. So I just wanted to share the wealth with other people so they could go out there and find interesting numbers themselves. And every day I'm getting emails from people around the world saying, oh, I just found a bill and it gets a 98.7. Uh, and I'm thinking, there's another person with too much time on their hands, but, um, but, but that's great. And that's kind of what I do for fun. I really am obsessed with numbers and hope to help other people find joy in them as well. <laughs> that is so cool. That is cool, coolnumbers.com. So does yep. that mean then, Pete, that if I had a cool number, it's worth more than a dollar? You know, it turns out, I didn't even know this at the time because I'm not doing this as a money-making proposition, but it turns out that there really are people who will buy and sell dollar bills with interesting numbers. If you go to eBay and find a, a bill, like, for instance, I once had the bill 12071941. All right, Valerie, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's interesting about that number? 12071941. I have no clue. Well, it turns out, if you think about it, if you wrote that down and looked at it, that's Pearl Harbor Day, oh. December 7th, 1941. I once had that bill. It turns out if you have a, a bill with a you know famous date like that, you could you know, sell that on eBay for like $25 or $30, even if it's a $1 bill. Um, so there actually are people out there. There really is a market for this. I never buy and sell these things. These are my treasures. I just put them in shoe boxes, hoping that one day my kids will be interested unlikely. Um, but yeah, there, there really are people out there who, who, who care about this stuff kind of, I'd say, almost for the wrong reasons, because there's an opportunity. Although, you know, more power to them. <laughs> that is so fun. I'm going to ask you some fun questions. So Pete, you're, you're fine on camera. You're doing a lot of speeches all over the world and all of that. If you could play a Hollywood actor in a movie of some kind, who would you be and what would the movie be about? Um, so, the, yeah, that's a great question, Bowie. So I'm trying to think of either someone who I uh, kind of, you know, model myself after um, versus someone who just, you know, lives a charmed life. Um, and, and, I'd, uh, and I'd rather go for the former. I'd rather kind of be in the shoes of someone whose shoes I'd want to, be it. Uh, and so I guess a natural one on that front would be Tom Hanks. You know, uh, only the, these kind things you're saying about me, you know, a lot of people say similar stuff about him. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there's a guy who you just, just genuinely admire, you know, everything mm -hmm. is all about, not to mention 
the, the, the roles that he's played, the variety of them, uh, and the joy that he's brought to a lot of people. Isn't that fun? So you have a family. I do. <laughs> I think you do. What do you do with your family the, that's very, the most very fun? Proud of them. Uh, say again, sorry. What do you do with your family that's the most fun? Um, uh, we, we love to play board games together, old school board games, even even like you know, kind of kids games and things. You know, like even even the, the dust off the old Monopoly or, or, or something like that, or even just these days. There's lots of interesting, newfangled games coming out all the time, and uh, and I count on my kids to kind of bring them to my attention, and then we'll just kind of you know, so, you know, there's just there's just no better way to break the ice. To forget about everything going on in the world, to kind of get to know each other better, um, uh, compared to just some kind of you know friendly competition, uh, 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 sitting around a table. And board games are a great thing to sit around the table and do with kids. I think that's great. So, uh, and, and not so kids. I mean, my my kids are twenty six and twenty nine, uh, so I, I I still think of them as kids, but. Other people might not look at them that way. Doesn't matter. It's 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 a it's a timeless activity, and I hope they're still doing it when their kids are twenty six and twenty nine. You, you know what, Pete? I think that's a great thing to say. It isn't about age that that you can play board games forever. I mean, really, right? That's right. And a lot of the other things that you know used to do with the kids, you know, yep. coaching little league and taking them to various lessons and things. Again, all of that was fun. We'd, we'd make the best of, of all of it, but a lot of those things really do come and go, where certain kinds of activities, board games and other sorts of things, really are timeless. That's fun. I want to go back to your earlier years. I read something um, a lot, one of the things, about your technology business and getting into uh, the FBI, CIA kind of stuff. What's all that about? Well, well, it goes back to uh, not necessarily my, my business per se, but again, uh, as a kid growing up, loving patterns, loving you know word and number games, loving you know different kinds of puzzles and things. So when I was actually a senior at MIT, um, I, I was actually thinking of going in that direction. So I was actually mm -hmm. interviewing with the NSA and the CIA because I figured that would just be great fun. That would be an example where I could be you know paid to do what I love to do. Um, and, and might have gone in that direction, except for one person who's nuttier than I am, woman I call my fairy godmother, Lee McAllister, who's now a professor at University of Texas. Um, she was a professor at MIT, and she basically said, no, 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 you're not going to do any of that. You are going to become a marketing professor. And I remember looking at her and saying, no, you've you got to get your head checked. I'm not marketing. Come on. <laughs> um, but she was right. And she basically painted a picture of marketing the way it is today, the way I described it, data, patterns, predictions. This was back in 1983. And so instead of going to kind of, you know, crack codes for the CAA, I'm cracking codes for Procter and & Gamble. Uh, and, and, and I'd say in some sense, it's actually more fun. Uh, and it's, it's uh, we're actually inventing new stuff. Uh, and and uh, not, not to say it would have been a bad path to go down, but it's been just a, an amazing path. The, the alternative that, that, that this one person, Lee McAllister, pushed me down. You know, I can just imagine sitting in your class. If I were a student sitting in your class, what would you hope that I would leave your class with inside? 
So it's a, it's a fantastic question. And, and actually, your class has just started. And so I actually, on day one of the class, I, I answered that question. I tell students what I'm looking for. So let me back up. The course that I teach is this nasty, horrible, quantitative class. It's just math and numbers and ew, right from day one. There's no cases, and there's no guest lectures, and there's no group projects, just math, 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 math. But the kind of math that enables you to understand this kind of stuff and to execute these kinds of strategies and so on. And my point is, if you want to do this stuff, you know, do it right. You got to bite the bullet. You got to rip off the bandaid. You got to learn that math. Um, and so a lot of it's, it's actually one of the hardest courses here at the Wharton School and the overall University of Pennsylvania. Uh, every year at the end of the semester, when they survey the students and they ask about course difficulty, I think the most recent number I got on a four-point scale, it got a 3.94. So it's, a, it's just a horrible, sadistic course. Math, 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 math. But what I want the students to get out of it isn't just a bunch of technical skills. I mean, sure, that would be nice too. What I'm trying to do, and this is going to sound terribly pretentious, is I want to change the way they look at the world. I want to change everything. So whether they're looking at sports or a pandemic or politics or business, I want them to look at the world through the lens that these different kinds of models provide and to see things a little bit differently, a little bit unconventionally, but a lot more, I think, accurately and diagnostically to really understand what's going on with markets, with all the things I mentioned before, sports and politics and so on. I really want to change the way that people see the world. I want to give them a lens or a series of lenses to make that possible. While they're taking the course, it's just pure pain. It's just pure math. It's just why am I doing this to myself? How am I going to keep up? Am I going to pass this course? But at the end, when all the technical stuff is out of the way, I want the ideas, the concepts, the perspectives to really linger with them. And there's nothing more gratifying than getting that email two, three, ten years later from a student saying, you know what? I remember those words from day one, and they really stuck with me. And even though I've forgotten a lot of the math, I am looking at things differently, uh, and I thank you for that. That you know, even though I'm not in the field of marketing and I'm not using your models, uh, I, I'm still seeing the world, my job, my family, my activities differently, uh, and it lingers with me more than any other course that I took. That's what it's all about. I, I, I really want to bring perspective more than anything that you know, memorize it for the final exam and then forget it a day later, as too many courses tend to be. Pete, that's beautifully said. That's beautifully said. And I can see it right from the heart, just pushing out to everyone that's watching and listening to the show. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I wish you continued successes and blessings. And where can people or companies get in touch with you? Give us the Sure. Skinny. Well, first, let's be honest. After uh, going through this, most people are going to be saying, why would I? Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> your, answer, your answer? Your uh, answer? I am delighted, delighted to connect with people on LinkedIn. 
Um, I'm obsessed with Twitter. If people could follow me on Twitter, at Fader P. Always looking for some new followers there. Or just Google my name, Google Peter Fader, and you'll find a lot of the content and nonsense that you yourself went through, Valerie. And you know, I encourage people to find some of that stuff or just to you know, get my contact info through that and reach out directly with questions, comments, cool numbers, <laughs> and anything else that might be of shared interest. Well, my hope is that more professors will be um, as clear a communicator, seriously, as you are, because here you have the brain of, I don't know, 10 million people in one, but you make it sound so simple. I think it would be great fun to be in your class, and thank you again, Pete, so much for being on this show. We'll stay in touch. Truly a pleasure. I hope we will. So it's just awesome to have someone like you on the show. Thank you so very much. And before we leave the show today, I hope you like my outfit, Pete, because it comes from <laughs> Betty Ryder at Preston Center. Go through the red door. They have incredible clothes, and I'm graciously accepting the fact that they let me wear them. Now, stay well, tuned for me? a gallery. We'll send some to you, Pete, <laughs> to your wife. Oh, good. <laughs> so here's my Valerieism for the day. And it's this. If you live on the edge, be careful not to fall off. <laughs> you know, you could take that a lot of different ways. When I was thinking about it, um, what it says to me is that it's great to be a risk taker. I've always been a risk taker. I've never been afraid of stepping out, stepping over, stepping under, going through whatever barriers I have to. That's never bothered me. But there's that twinge of when you know you might be uh, right on that edge. And when that little twinge happens, you better step back because some people keep going and that's when failure happens. That's my Valerieism for the day. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.